Chapter 9 The devil was not made in the image of God like us. He was never a human being. Nor are the foul demons who serve him. They are unseen spirits with no visible shape of their own. Satan has never been able to appear visibly as himself, although he could occupy the body of an animal such as a serpent or a person such as Judas and speak and act through them. Animals, people and inanimate objects can also be occupied by demonic spirits. So when people burned offerings to idols of wood and stone, we are told, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. The word occult means hidden, and the enemy likes to keep his victims as ignorant of his existence as he possibly can. But occasionally he appears in his most visible and frightening disguise. We read, Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The deep roar of a lion echoes off trees and buildings, confusing us so we cannot tell where the sound is coming from. We may think there are several lions, and perhaps there are. He attempts to confuse and frighten us so we abandon what we're doing and flee into his jaws. But how can he do this, you may ask, if he's chained and confined to the abyss? The answer is very simple. He sends his demonic agents to impersonate him and act for him. Satan himself could only be in one place at a time, but evil spirits can find their way everywhere. The lion, like the abyss, is a physical image representing a spiritual reality. It suggests a terrifying adversary, human, political or ideological, or perhaps many such adversaries, all active at the same time, seeking to frighten us into submission. As in past times, the enemy may move powerful authorities to oppose and contradict us. He may hinder our work of gospel outreach by threats or riots or official prohibition. Demonic spirits have inspired great military conquerors and dictators of the past. Alexander, Napoleon, Hitler and others of their kind were superb predators, but cruel. Historians admire such men, for they are magnificent. Some indeed may excuse them because, like an eagle or a shark, they are only doing what is natural. Natural indeed, but intensely wicked, causing misery to all whose land and livelihood they covet. Their power was diabolical. And in some places today there are ambitious politicians and corrupt officials abusing their authority to threaten neighbouring countries, to cheat and defraud the poor, and to persecute the followers of Christ. In our own nation, powers of darkness are at work. It's an evil spirit who arouses violent and reckless hatred in a football fan 
who leads a poor woman to steal a perfume from a shop counter, who draws the eyes of a teenager to pornographic videos, who inspires witchcraft and black magic, and who moves an entrepreneur to add a profitable poison to the product he promotes. In any social or racial context, the evil one will seek to stir up prejudice and resentment, which may quickly turn to hatred and perhaps violence. This is exactly what he wants, because few engaged in violence will give any thought to the Prince of Peace or the God of all compassion. It is easy for the devil to promote corrupt forms of Christianity when he finds leaders of church and nation willing to work with him and unable to see that the master they serve is not Christ but his cruelest enemy. Here is the greatest tragedy of human history. Bishops and priests imposing inquisitions and bloody executions, tyrannising populations, persecuting any who read and follow the Bible, promoting the violent conquest of foreign nations under the banner of the cross. On account of these atrocities, the name of Jesus and the cross itself are hated in large parts of the world today. But our foe will often use more subtle methods, and these we will now consider. Contrary to what we may expect, the enemy's main strategy with humankind is not cruelty or disease, but deception. With violence or with illness he can frighten thousands, but with deception he can influence and manipulate millions. He finds this by far his most effective weapon. We read that he is the deceiver of the whole world. We may think that good or sincere people cannot be deceived. We may imagine that seekers after truth will never be led astray. But at one time or another he has fooled us all. He sends us negative thoughts and false impressions. He tricks us into grasping what is not good for us. He offers excitements and inducements that charm and captivate. He soothes us with comforts and false assurances. He offers films and books to keep us entertained. He uses the latest and most colourful technology. And everything he does promotes his own agenda. But in this there is really nothing new. The same methods have always served him well. The deceiver is at work when Eve is persuaded there can be no harm in what looks so nice. He is there when Job's wife disheartens the sufferer, saying, Curse God and die. He is lurking unnoticed when David calls another man's wife to his bed. He is smiling when the emperor boasts, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power? He is whispering when Judas resolves to betray innocent blood. 
He laughs when the Laodicean church says, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. He is a liar and a cheat. Like a virus, we do not see him, but we see what he does. We see the effect of his presence in human beings. Then, as people cannot serve both God and money, he offers large amounts of money. Others he beguiles into lifestyles and relationships that are stressful or exhausting, knowing that, preoccupied with this, they will give no thought to the way of Christ. Emotional and physical frailty he aggravates with living conditions that hinder recovery, inducing people to accept polluted air, contaminated water, junk food, drugs and alcohol all of which debilitate body and mind and hamper the natural working of immunity and repair. Then he points to the suffering of the world as proof there is no God or that such a God cannot be good. Having wrecked creation, he now blames the Creator and persuades multitudes to accept the lie. But many people are very nice. It's hard to find fault with them. They seem content with life and cause no trouble to anyone. Engaged in charitable causes, they will tell you they are good. Quite happy with themselves, they see no need for change. The devil is happy with them too and causes them no trouble. They are not following Jesus Christ, so they are comfortably his. A few, when their prosperity or self-esteem are under threat, are not found to be so nice. Their pleasantness was only skin deep, and when crossed or denied, we see their expression and their language change. Others, without getting their own way, still manage to remain very pleasant. But if you speak to them about the love of God, or about the Bible, they begin to feel uneasy. They try not to show it, and in most cases do not know why. They would rather you talked about the devil than about Jesus, but could not explain this if you asked them. Many people assume they are Christians because they were christened or baptised or go to church or believe in God, or because they have some Christian traditions. The devil encourages this, so long as they are not following Christ himself. The purpose of all deception is to keep people away from Jesus Christ. The enemy wants men and women to be gripped by whatever delusion they are in, so they will stay exactly where they are. He chooses a method to suit each culture and each person. In large areas of Africa and Asia, the deceptions are driven by fear, through bizarre apparitions and terrifying unnatural experiences. In Europe and America, people are more often lulled into a false sense of security, thinking they are doing well. Others become obsessed with current disasters and impractical strategies to save the world. 
Many are enticed with prospects of power or wealth or celebrity. A few will be tempted by criminal opportunities and rewards. Most have no idea they are deceived. They are doing what seems good for them or what others expect of them. Having long ago made up their mind, they do not want to think again. Ignorant of what they could have, they have no idea what they have lost. We are told, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. This is the unhappy truth. We read, the whole world lies in the evil one, willingly, passively, contentedly slumbering in the comfortable embrace of an obliging confidence trickster. He is a master of disguise, enticing the unwary with many subtle lures. But we have no need to be caught in any of his traps or snares. There are ways to identify them and ways to escape them. The devil has followers in high places and low, doing his will and promoting his agenda. The glittering entertainment industries are largely inspired by him. So too are some powerful ideologies that stifle free thinking in academic institutions. For the sake of political correctness, we are required to believe and speak like people who despise the word of God. And even in religious establishments, there are prescribed tolerances and intolerances that we are required to approve. For the sake of a quiet life, we may prefer not to rock the boat. It can seem that our faith is unnecessary and even a little troublesome, so we rarely talk about it. The deceiver is quite happy with this, too. He has far more followers than Jesus Christ and sees no need to shake things up. Wherever truth is shut out, falsehoods and fallacies will flourish. If a knowledge of evil has caused much trouble, an ignorance of good has caused far more. That is why Jesus made teaching the truth his first priority rather than healing the sick. Let us go on to the next towns, he said, that I may preach there also, for that is why I have come. And this is why we proclaim and teach the truth of God to anyone who will listen. It's the only hope for a world misguided, cheated and headed for disaster. A deception is far more dangerous than a physical illness or an accident. In general, we recover quite soon from an injury to the body. Not so from a delusion of the mind. Illness may stop us in our tracks, but deception impels us onward to catastrophe. Illness may damage for a time, but deception for eternity. Illness will be healed when Christ returns. Deception will be ended, but not healed. Illness can be among the all things working together for good. 
but deception offers no such hope. It is a downward spiral bringing only sorrow and regret. The more deceived a person is, the more deceived they become. Not knowing they are ill, they do not seek a cure. When offered to them, it appears unnecessary and absurd. That is why the enemy still uses deception as his most effective weapon. And humankind in general freely chooses to be deceived. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, there were some who actually planned to destroy the evidence by killing Lazarus. This is neither honest nor persuasive. In the end, they killed Jesus. To persecute and kill a good man is not normal human behaviour. It is diabolical. And powers of darkness still lead ordinary people to behave devilishly. Entire cultures and societies are blighted with an irrational prejudice a thinly veiled antagonism towards those like Lazarus who have been greatly helped by Jesus and genuinely believe in him. As false prophets and delusive ideologies attract more followers than the Son of God, it may seem that the enemy is winning the war for the hearts and minds of humankind. He is called the God of this world because so many choose to serve him. If crowds had been present in the wilderness when Jesus battled with the devil, far more would have been cheering for the devil than for Jesus. In his hour of trial, those who shouted crucify greatly outnumbered the poor disciples still standing with him at the cross. But among the crowds, there were a few with ears to hear. To be outnumbered by fish is no shame for a fisherman. To be outnumbered by sheep is no shame for a shepherd. We may think that once we belong to Jesus Christ, the devil will cease to trouble us. That would be a serious mistake. In fact, he will try to undermine and destroy the faith and character of all who follow Christ. We know that Satan is the deceiver of the whole world, and he does his utmost to deceive God's people too. James warns them, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. John writes, Little children, let no one deceive you. Paul says, Let no one deceive himself. And twice more, Let no one deceive you. And three times, Do not be deceived. The warning was needed because the danger was real. The deceiver comes to us in most attractive forms, as indeed he did to Eve. His friendly emissaries mingle with the flock, dressed in woolly fleeces. They do not look like wolves at all, until they carry us into dark corners and devour us. We read that such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, 
for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. The unwary may be enticed and fascinated by deep insights and interpretations, without realising these are the deep things of Satan. False prophets, priests and pastors may become famous for their passion and their power. Claiming to be the true church, they are in reality a synagogue of Satan. Believers who are not well established in the truth may easily be fooled by them. We read that some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Paul sent anxiously for news of some new believers, as he told them, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labour would be in vain. To others he confided, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. The twelve disciples closest to Jesus were not immune. Satan demanded to have you all so he might sift you all like wheat. That is what he told Peter. But I have prayed for you yourself that your faith may not fail. The enemy's desire is to sift each one of us, to examine us, to identify points of weakness, of carelessness, of pride, and break us apart. But we have a saviour who prays for us, and friends who pray for us, and we pray for ourselves, and our faith does not fail. Then Jesus says to us, as he said to Peter, When you have come back, strengthen your brothers. With our faith chastened and matured, we have the privilege and responsibility to help others facing the same insidious sifting and examination. The devil comes to us in moments of weakness and when we least expect it. He tempts us, like Eve in the garden or Jesus in the wilderness, to grasp what will harm us or hinder the purposes of God. He attempts to persuade us of things that are not true, misleading us through what we read or hear or feel or through what other people say. He will cast doubt on God's word and dim our perception of God's will. He suggests ideas to our mind so we become critical, resentful, fearful or angry and rush into conflict or controversy without due thought or prayer. He will coax us to join with unbelievers in business or marriage or some public enterprise, so we are influenced by their dishonesty, impurity or prejudice. He may afflict us with tensions and anxieties, disturbing our sleeping and waking hours with obsessive fears or regrets. He may produce odd symptoms so we start to think we are physically ill when really we are quite well. 
In many ways, our enemy seeks to tempt and mislead us. But none need take us by surprise. His methods do not change from year to year, and we can be well prepared. Whatever problems we may face, we can help and support one another. As it is written, so we will not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Christian leaders are especially a target for the tempter. We should not suppose that a person who is active and effective in God's service can never be deceived. Jesus warned four of his own apostles, See that no one leads you astray. Deception was a real possibility for each of them. It's a mistake to assume that a pastor or singer or famous evangelist can never be misled. A person may be correct on one subject and mistaken on another, wise one day and foolish the next. Judas had proclaimed the kingdom of heaven, yet we read that Satan entered into him. Ananias was a generous donor, tempted and rebuked. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Peter himself offered bad advice, and Jesus admonished him, Get behind me, Satan. If a leader can be lured into moral downfall or financial misconduct, many who trusted him will become disillusioned or critical, or else follow his bad example. If bishops and pastors can be persuaded they know better than Christ and his apostles, we may soon see current ideas and modern cultures replacing scripture as their guide and authority. No longer believing what the Bible says, they draw their followers into confusion and unbelief to face illness, old age and death with no assurance of anything. In the fellowship of God's people, there are diverse spiritual gifts and ministries, and each of them has its devilish counterfeit. In the New Testament itself, we meet false prophets, false apostles, false teachers, false brothers, false words, and false signs and wonders. There may be miracles of light or blood, visions or voices or unidentified flying objects, because the enemy is able to manipulate the spiritual and physical elements of creation. And of course, pseudo-illnesses can easily be healed by pseudo-healers. In all these many ways, the devil seeks to confuse and mislead God's people. If we are passive and trusting and willing to accept anything, we lay ourselves open to deception. Singing or speaking with a vacant mind can easily cause false ideas and impressions to take root. When serving or praising God, the mind should never be disengaged. The Apostle said, I will sing with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. 
The devil may even try to make us unduly worried about deception. Someone who disagrees with you or me is not necessarily deceived. Wherever there are intelligent people with varied experiences and temperaments, there will be differences of preference and perspective. An opinion may be right or wrong and can modify with time. But if it leads to obsession, arrogance, anxiety or hostility, it reveals itself as a deception. A person suffering in this way will need our patience and our prayer. We read that those who are mature in Christ have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. It's not that we study what is wrong, but we're so familiar with what is right that anything amiss will be quite obvious. Knowing the Bible well, we can easily spot anything that contradicts it. Knowing what love is, we quickly sense what is unloving. So Paul prays for his friends. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. We have seen that the word diabolos or devil means accuser. And although he can no longer accuse us before the eternal God in heaven, he may lead people to accuse us in this world. Anyone who serves God faithfully will sooner or later be charged with an offence of which they are quite innocent. Job was accused of meanness and unkindness. Moses was accused of being proud and arrogant. David was accused of stealing things for his own benefit. Nehemiah was accused of trying to become a king. Paul was accused of being an impostor. Jesus himself was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard, and even of being in league with the devil. These were all false accusations. The best defence is calmly to deny the charge and press on faithfully, careful as it is written to avoid every appearance of evil. Very often the Lord God himself will put the accuser to shame or convince him of his error. So we read, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Yes, indeed. Your kindness will embarrass his unkindness, and good will gently overcome. We will speak more of this. The enemy may move us to accuse one another. He will endeavour to break up Christian marriages, to divide Christian missionaries, to isolate Christian leaders, to fragment Christian fellowships and families. He will arouse annoyance and resentment if he can, and cause us to hold grudges that grow if left unchecked. Therefore, we read, do not let the sun go down on your anger, 
and give no opportunity to the devil. A person who will not forgive becomes an accuser, doing the enemy's work for him. For this reason, the apostle insists, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive, so we would not be outwitted by Satan. The devil may sometimes lead us to accuse ourselves and perhaps to feel we have utterly failed and are quite useless. He seeks to manipulate our conscience in two ways. Either he will dull our sense of right and wrong, so we more easily do his will, or he will heighten these senses so we have a morbid feeling of guilt and condemnation. We should always remember that our conscience is a gift from God, a friend to help and guide, not an enemy to condemn. When the Holy Spirit touches our conscience, he leads us to the light. When the devil troubles it, he leads us into darkness. And with experience, we learn to know the difference. And whatever wrong I may have done, Christ has borne it for me, so it no longer stands on my account. I can face both God and man without fear. At times, the accuser will seek to turn minor setbacks into major discouragements. In this fallen world, we all face disappointments and frustrations, but they need never overwhelm us. Paul and his missionary friends were sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. They were afflicted in every way, but not crushed. They were perplexed, but not driven to despair. In the long struggle between right and wrong, we may lose many a skirmish, and yet finally gain the victory. For as it is written, we cannot do anything against the truth but only for the truth. The enemy hates the truth and always seeks to undermine it. We read he has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. We hear that malicious whisper, you're too old, or you're too shy, or you're not gifted or qualified, or you lack the health or wealth or friends in high places. The enemy will try to discourage us and make us feel we can do nothing. To which we reply, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then, the devil may even accuse the eternal God. He suggests to our mind that there is no God, or that he does not love us, or is too weak to help us. To which we answer, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In brief, we should never ignore the devil and never fear him.
Whether he comes with temptation, deception or accusation, we have learned exactly how to deal with him. The Apostle says, Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It may seem surprising that the enemy will not merely leave us, but will flee from us. For he fears the Spirit of Christ in us. Finding us always resistant, always doing the will of God, he will soon leave us and go in search of others more to his liking. This is the Gospel age, as we have seen, when people from every culture and nation are drawn by the Spirit of Christ to faith in him. Many who in past times blindly followed deceitful spirits and whose ancestors served them with passion and devotion now understand the truth and take their place among God's special people under his protection. How wonderful this is. We read that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. When troubles come, we support one another, as we are told, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. When our Saviour entered the temple in Jerusalem, we read that he drove out all who had corrupted and defiled it. And he is able to drive out all that would corrupt the new temple of our body. There are no powers of darkness too strong for the Spirit of Christ in us. We read that he is even now destroying every rule and every authority and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. When he comes into his kingdom, the contest will be over. Disease, damage, decay, powers of darkness and the devil himself will all be gone. Then, we are told, as the old world gives way to the new, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The outcome of the battle is certain, but we're not there yet. In the world around us, we still see many people hurt and anxious, striving against all manner of evil. Wherever we encounter conflict, distress or fear, we may ask, what is the Lord God doing here? What is the devil doing? Whose side am I on? And what am I called to do myself? That is what we will now consider.